Welcome to the Choate Family Office podcast series. On this show, we explore important topics related to investing, managing risk, and sustaining long-term wealth across generations. We believe that all investors can learn from the ways that successful families manage their wealth. I'm Todd Malay, Managing Director of Choate Investment Advisors. Today, I'm pleased to be joined by Dr. Taylor Fravel of MIT for a discussion of the current global security situation and what it means for investors. At MIT, Taylor is the Arthur and Ruth Sloan Professor of Political Science and is the director of the MIT Security Studies Program. Taylor graduated from Millbury College and earned his PhD from Stanford University. He also has graduate degrees from the London School of Economics and Oxford University, where he was a Rhodes Scholar and where we were classmates. Taylor currently serves on the editorial boards of several prominent journals and is a member of the board of directors for the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. He recently published a book on China's military strategy since 1949 titled Active Defense. Taylor, thank you so much for talking with me today. It's great to be here, Todd. Thank you very much. I'd like to start by asking you to tell me about the security studies program at MIT that you lead. Great, yeah, thank you. So the MIT security studies program is a research and educational program within the Massachusetts Institute of Technology uh, focusing on international security. Uh, we have about uh, almost 50 people in the program, including uh, roughly 10 faculty members, uh, five uh, senior fellows, which at MIT we have to uh, describe as uh, senior research scientists, and uh, about 10 uh, postdoctoral uh, fellows, and then uh, the remainder would be uh, graduate students. And we try to do two things. The first is to produce uh, sort of policy-relevant uh, but rigorous uh, academic research on pressing uh, security problems of the day, uh, focusing on four areas in particular. Uh, the first would be uh, Asian security, uh, covering China, Japan, and South Asia. The second would be weapons of mass destruction with a particular emphasis on nuclear uh, strategy and nuclear uh, proliferation. Uh, the third area is civil wars and ethnic conflicts uh, where they might arise around the world, but particularly in the Middle East. And the fourth area is a uh, U.S. sort of grand strategy and uh, sort of foreign policy uh, more generally. In, in addition to our research in these areas, though, uh, what we really tried to do is uh, train the next generation of scholars and policy analysts uh, through, through our Ph.D. program. And so you typically have 25 to 35 students within uh, the political science department at MIT who choose to focus on uh, security studies. And so we divide our time on the one hand doing our own research, but then uh, perhaps even more of our time on the other hand, uh, trying to uh, train uh, the next generation of students to carry out the same kind of uh, policy relevant but rigorous uh, work on kind of pressing security problems of the day. Thank you. So given that broad perspective that you have, um, I was hoping you could just give me your overall view on the current global security situation and uh, particularly what security issues do you think have the greatest potential to affect the global economy and the markets? Sure. I mean, we are in a moment of absolutely, I think, unprecedented change in our world politics created uh, by uh, the onset of the coronavirus uh, pandemic and how it is sort of reverberating through sort of all aspects of international relations from uh, diplomacy uh, to security uh, to even issues such as uh, climate change. And so I guess I would highlight a couple of areas. The first would be, uh, at least at the moment, uh, the weakening or the fragility of uh, multilateral institutions and multilateral cooperation. 
I think this was witnessed in the role that the World Health Organization played in the coronavirus pandemic, but really is emblematic of a broader way in which I think uh, the institutions of global governance have been under stress, whether it's uh, the United Nations, uh, the World Trade Organization, and others in addition uh, to the World Health Organization. Uh, the second uh, factor would be that we have uh, the rise of a much greater and sharper competition between the United States and China, the world's two largest economies, which I think from an investing point of view, but also just from a much broader political point of view, I'd have the greatest impact on how international politics will develop. And US-China relations have uh, sort of been deteriorating uh, slowly but steadily in the last several years, really perhaps since 2015. But that deterioration took uh, or accelerated, if you will, in the last six months as uh, the, the global pandemic uh, began to spread. And it now touches all areas to include uh, trade uh, between the two countries. I think uh, the president indicated he had no interest in pursuing a phase two trade deal. I'm not sure that he ever really did, but he sort of made it much more explicit than before. In, in, in the military arena, you see, you see greater competition between the US and China, particularly in the waters of uh, the Western Pacific and the South China Sea, uh, and in many other areas as well. And so I think that has a potential to really uh, reshape a number of uh, different uh, arenas. One, I think in the area of technology, you see a much greater push on the part of the United States uh, to try to sort of decouple, if you will, especially in the technological domain from China. You also see a push by the United States to encourage other countries to pursue a similar decoupling, at least as uh, far as uh, 5G and particularly uh, buying uh, telecom and other equipment from uh, the Chinese company Huawei. And so I think really just in the last few weeks, you see a number of countries, which a year ago, uh, were pretty adamant they were going to go ahead uh, with uh, 5G equipment, such as uh, Great Britain or Italy, uh, now announcing that, in fact, uh, they uh, will not. And so this competition between the US and China is really uh, broad-based. It's, it's a military competition focusing on Asia. It's a much broader global economic competition. And then it's also a technological competition. But the second aspect I wanted to focus on also is that increasingly, uh, countries may feel as if they're going to be forced to choose sides between the United mm -hmm. States and China. And that has a, a potential, especially in light of the weakening of institutions, uh, multilateral institutions in particular, to create much sort of greater volatility and uncertainty in uh, international uh, politics and international relations. Well, there's a lot to cover there. I'm, I'm interested in your observations about the effect of the virus. Do you, do you see the virus as sort of accelerating trends that were already happening, or has the virus fundamentally changed things? I think in the context of the U.S. and China, it just rapidly accelerated a trend that was already uh, taking place. And you saw that in sort of March and April, in particular, U.S. diplomacy was focused on trying to rename the virus, to call it the Chinese virus or the Wuhan virus, the National Security Council. I think even on its Twitter account at one point called it the Kung Flu, but this idea that if you could give it a Chinese name, that it would somehow uh, underscore China's culpability uh, for what happened. And then at around the same time, the US, uh, US diplomacy spent a lot of time uh, trying to uh, convince the world that the virus somehow escaped from a laboratory, uh, sort of a class four uh, laboratory in Wuhan. And I think that uh, simply hardened uh, perceptions on both sides that really there was no going back to the relationship that might have existed between the U.S. and China, say, a decade ago. And of course, this is on top of a lot of other frictions that were already in play. The situation in the South China Sea uh, was already uh, quite uh, tense by this point. Uh, greater concerns over Taiwan and many of the other issues between the U.S. and China. But certainly, I think 
uh, the virus you know, sped up, perhaps by a number of years, the way in which U.S.-China relations were deteriorating. And this in a very stark way, which I think creates fewer off-ramps or less flexibility for managing the relationship in the coming four-year period. I think in terms of the weakening of international institutions, this has also been a trend uh, that has been underway. I think one trend I, I should have mentioned before that I didn't is simply kind of the rise of uh, populism or nationalism in many countries around the world, which I think mm -hmm. uh, uh, cast uh, merits of inter international or interstate cooperation in new lights and, and in a new light and ma makes it seem uh, somehow uh, less nationalist if your country uh, is internationalist, right? And so we, we saw this with Brexit. One could say uh, we saw this in the United States, uh, given uh, the factors and groups that led to the election of uh, Donald Trump as president and in, in many other countries around the world. And so uh, one problem, though, with this sort of rising nationalism or populism, and we see it in China and India and, and elsewhere, right? this is really clearly not, not just in a, a dynamic in, in sort of the advanced industrialized economy. But one problem is, right, it really does lead uh, to the adoption of sharper rhetoric, uh, more parochial uh, ways of assessing one's interests. And thus, in some sense, it's just a, a much higher sort of baseline probability for uh, crises or uh, uh, tensions to escalate in ways that may uh, have not been the case, say, five years ago. And for multinational companies, obviously, this is a real problem because they were yeah. set up really with supply chains, assuming that there was going to be almost frictionless commerce around the world. What do you see as you mentioned these two spheres developing? What does that mean for multinational firms? Well, I think the big open question is to what extent is the coupling between the U.S. and China limited to technology versus to what extent does it spread far beyond technology into other areas? And as, as you know, there's so much manufacturing in the world and, and the attendant supply chains are sort of focused on Asia and China in particular, and it's hard to see how these would be uh, reworked in a way that these could be re reworked or, or rejiggered in a short period of time. And so I, I, I think uh, for, for multinational corporations, they're going to, I think, start hedging their bets and probably think about creating uh, a new, new manufacturing plants in different parts of the world. So Apple's considering, for example, I think moving some production to India. They've already moved, I believe, some production uh, to Vietnam. And of course, Mexico, I think, stands to benefit uh, as a way of sort of manufacturing even more goods for sale into the U.S. market. But I think it poses real challenges uh, for multinationals, right, which do want uh, to sort of see uh, stability in international politics and international economics. And now there's much less stability, but it's not necessarily clear how far uh, it will go. Uh, and given the timeframes, it will take uh, sort of to, to reconfigure uh, supply chains and manufacturing facilities. Uh, I think we may see a lot of groping through the dark, if you will, just trying to see what is possible while waiting for kind of the politics to play out and to see uh, where it lands. But I certainly think uh, sort of going forward, uh, you'll see many companies probably think twice about whether or not they want to add new capacity in China versus adding new capacity in, in other countries, and other markets. And can we talk a little bit about the fault lines uh, in Asia in particular? You mentioned China and India, mm -hmm. and obviously the tensions have been rising on the border there. Um, there are tensions between China and several of its neighbors. What's the calculus there for these countries of, you know, living in a world with, with this dichotomy and how do they strike the balance between their own security interests and, and obviously coexisting with China? Sure. I mean, what you see in, in many of, of these countries, India is a bit of an exception, perhaps, maybe Japan because their economies are so large. But what you see in general is these none of these countries seeking to break economic ties with China because it's far too important for their own economies to maintain those 
economic relationships uh, with China. But you do see them increasingly uh, turning uh, to the United States or wanting to maintain a robust security relationship with the United States. And this could possibly work uh, for some countries. It sort of prevents them uh, from choosing. Uh, but if U.S.-China relations get really intense, for example, it may be that uh, either the U.S. or the China ask them to choose, and then they're faced with a really uh, challenging uh, choice. And one could see that in some ways, many of these countries are going to be guided by their economies first and foremost. And so they may tend uh, to drift more towards China, especially if they don't have sort of active uh, territorial disputes um, or, or very challenging territorial disputes with China. Japan, for example, still disputes the Senkaku Islands and China and India have a big dispute on their border that's erupted into violence within the last uh, a month or so. And, and so th these countries, I think, and being larger economies can maybe sort of be in a position to sort of seek other sources for their economies. But smaller or relatively smaller economies in the region, such as Vietnam, or Indonesia or others, Thailand or the Philippines, I think are going to be still drawn to, 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 to the attraction of the China market to, to the degree that it benefits uh, their own economies. Well, and even a longstanding U.S. ally, uh, the, the United Kingdom, wavered a bit on Huawei before ultimately deciding to yeah. side with the United States. So yes. I guess that's an illustration that these economic considerations might not be as clear as we think they are. No, because you know, in the case of Great Britain, uh, all the major phone companies already use a lot of Huawei gear, I understand, and so the cost for them to reconfigure their networks is quite substantial. And they, I think they thought that uh, with some agreements they had with Huawei in terms of setting up a security lab to kind of uh, conduct a third-party evaluation or at least a quasi-third-party evaluation of, of Huawei products and software, they would be able to manage the security risks. But the way in which I think U.S.-China relations have deteriorated uh, and have sort of led countries to make a starker choice. And, and so certainly, I think those that are a bit farther away from China and that are sort of less dependent on China, like uh, the European countries have been able, I think, to take action, say, uh, on Huawei and 5G that we might not see many uh, countries in Asia take simply because they, they might feel China exercises too much economic influence over them and they can't kind of make that decision. So what should investors be watching in terms of the, assessing this situation and deciding is it getting worse? Are there certain litmus tests or flashpoints that you think people should have their eye on? With, with respect to the U.S. and China or more generally? I guess with respect to the U.S. and China, but then more generally as well. To think, you know, are we truly entering kind of a deglobalizing world? You know, this this sort of two spheres, two poles. You know, are there particular countries that seem to be on the pivot point of that? And, and depending on which way they go, that's going to be an indicator. That's a really good question. I think, um, and so I don't, I don't actually have a, I have a good answer for you, but just because these relationships are complex, and I don't think necessarily. There's one or two indicators you could you could necessarily look to, but I think one would be, especially in East Asia, whether or not uh, countries decide to reduce uh, the presence of U.S. troops if they're if they're treaty allies or to, to reduce their security engagements. I think that will probably be the sign that that they have uh, started to choose, that they have been faced with pressure to choose, and, and they are choosing now. As an indicator, of course, it may not be readily apparent. These things often are not sort of front and center uh, in the news. But 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 I think if the competition deepens and if China wants to really uh, strengthen its position in the Asia region, it will probably at some point decide it uh, wants to be the only major power in the in the region, and that the U.S. should leave. And we would see this sort of filter through 
alliances with Korea, with Japan, but then also the, the ways in which uh, the U.S. maintains uh, military access to countries that it doesn't have formal treaties with, such as Singapore, Malaysia, and others. Uh, so I, I would suspect that would be probably the best indicator in light of sort of the dynamics I've talked about. And I, I suspect, too, that we would not see, uh, say, Australia, which is also a very robust U.S. ally, uh, uh, shift towards China. If anything, I think Australia is deciding to shift the other way in terms of um, some of the public statements that it's made. And perhaps just the willingness to use uh, Huawei and other uh, perhaps a very sensitive uh, Chinese technologies in in their in, in their computer networks and national phone networks and other networks might also be a sign that in some ways that they've chosen. And here you do see a pretty a clear cut between kind of the advanced industrialized democracies that in general appear to be uh, trying to avoid Huawei and then the developing economies. And in this regard, India is really interesting because I think India is moving to a place where it will also try uh, to prevent uh, Huawei from being a part of its 5G network. Uh, but there the cost advantage is going to be really consequential for India in a way in which it may have been slightly less consequential for the more advanced economies. So just turning away from China for a second, there are many other security issues in the world I guess we could talk about. But uh, as you look across and think about you know, the, the ongoing simmering tension with Iran or uh, cybersecurity threats from places like Russia or North Korea, are any rise to the level where you think it's quite acute and people aren't sort of paying enough attention to, to the potential disruption from that? Well, let me take the uh, Iranian one first. I mean, I think the situation with Iran has certainly gotten much more uh, complicated, uh, especially with the U.S. decision to withdraw uh, from the agreement that the Obama administration had reached with the Iranian government regarding nuclear permit. And so this has led Iran to embark upon a series of countermeasures and responses, including most recently announced this week, a long-term kind of uh, sort of cooperation agreement with China, the details of which are still unclear, but is in fact has sort of potential to maybe uh, reshape partly this part of the world. But I think depending on uh, the outcome of the election in the United States, there is a chance that uh, a different administration might come in and uh, pursue a different approach to Iran. On the cyber front, it is, it, on the one hand, it sort of permeates everything. Uh, and on the other hand, uh, it's often, you know, it's very hard to see, right? This is one of the great challenges with, with cybers. You could be hacked and you wouldn't even know it, right? Until after the fact. Whereas in, in, in the more traditional world of security studies that I grew up in, if you're attacked by, by another country, you know it because they've started firing, you know, artillery shells and missiles at you and things explode. And, you know, people die and it's pretty clear. And so on the cyber front, I guess I would say a couple of things. I think first one has to distinguish between uh, the cyber activities of state actors versus non-state actors. And clearly with respect to non-state actors uh, and uh, criminal activity, we're gonna see even more and more uh, cyber related crimes, whether it's phishing attacks or uh, ransomware or any of these things that have sort of made the headlines. I'm sure there are many more of these kinds of uh, stories that haven't made the headlines because oftentimes companies don't want to reveal when they've uh, been attacked. So uh, on the nation state side, I think one wants to uh, distinguish between uh, three different kinds of cyber activities. The first would be uh, cyber theft uh, to sort of include the theft of industrial secrets. The second would be uh, sort of more traditional state-to-state uh, -state espionage activities. And then the third would be uh, military activities. And certainly with uh, some countries like China, the state is clearly behind uh, sort of a decades-long effort right, to steal industrial secrets uh, from other countries. And also, again, just using China as an example, because it's a case I know well, uh, China's been very active on the cyber uh, uh, dimension uh, in terms of uh, using cyber tools to conduct 
uh, traditional forms of espionage, most notably in 2015, I believe it was, uh, the Office of Personnel Management database was hacked. And this database was particularly important because it contained uh, all of the applications for security clearances from anyone who had ever held a security clearance and thus gave uh, the country who accessed that information, which everyone believes to be China, uh, some pretty detailed information about uh, sort of per personnel in, in the US government. I, I suspect that will only become more common, especially as cyber tools uh, tend to progress. And then the third area, uh, actually, I want to add a fourth area, but a third area being cyber attacks. Here, I actually think uh, there are some really significant risks uh, in terms of uh, escalation and attribution. And so sometimes when you're attacked with a cyber weapon, it can be hard to tell who attacked you. And thus, it's harder to uh, counterattack. And moreover, it's harder to deter that attack uh, in the first place. Uh, it's, it's sort of referred to as the attribution problem, and, and, and it's a really important problem. On the other hand, uh, sort of cyber tools, in some ways, are sort of blunt instruments from a warfighting perspective. We often talk about sort of a cyber Pearl harbor, say an attack on a security grid or major infrastructure in the United States or in another country. But that would also be seen sort of in the parlance of nuclear strategy right, as a counter-value attack, not on you know, sort of soldiers of your adversary, but actually on its population. And that has really high sort of uh, escalation risks. I mean, state will, states will take that very seriously and probably uh, try to uh, carry out a proportionate response. And so in the cyber sort of, sort of, or in the military domain of cyber, apart from the way in which cyber would play a role in sort of intelligence uh, surveillance and reconnaissance, but on the actual warfighting side, I think among the great powers, there is certainly room uh, for some kind of deterrence along the lines that we saw in, in the Cold War with respect to, uh, to nuclear weapons. And then a fourth cyber area I should have mentioned earlier, but a fourth one, would be basically the, the role of uh, cyber in what are sometimes described as disinformation operations or political interference. And this sort of really uh, sort of appeared in the 2016 election, election, excuse me, and some activities that were attributed uh, to Russia. And I think this is an area where uh, sort of it, there, there's a proof of concept from the 2016 election. It often re relies upon exploiting very insecure uh, uh, personal networks or private networks of institutions such as think tanks or political parties, right, that are not nearly as robust, say, as network security of a big bank, right, for whom one single cyber event could really lead to the bankruptcy of the, of the bank, right? And so it's unclear exactly how this is going to play out, but it kind of contributes to some of the themes that we were talking about at the start of our conversation in terms of the, the growing kind of instability of international politics and the weakening of institutions sort of seems to be accompanied by a greater willingness, or at least having uh, in one's possession tools that uh, make it more easy to interfere uh, using cyber means in, in the politics of other countries. Uh, at the moment, Russia really seems to be a sort of the, the lead actor in this regard, and but I think that they may be sort of introducing the rest of the world to techniques that could be used in other contexts. And so that's a really important area to watch uh, as well. You mentioned the contrast between cyber warfare and, and actual shooting warfare, and I, I did want to ask you whether you thought there was much prospect of, of uh, escalation getting out of hand and any of these flashpoints uh, around the world or, or whether that's something that you regard as relatively low risk? I, I would say it's not low risk at all, although we are in an era where the advances in warfighting mean that conflicts very quickly become uh, quite destructive, right? And so there's great attention uh, on all sides 
when there's an issue that could escalate to controlling escalation. I guess I'll offer the following comments. I mean, from a great power perspective, I think the greatest opportunities for escalation at the moment are probably between the US and China. And this could start small, right? It could be a collision at sea between two ships. Uh, but that, especially if, say, that collision led to the loss of life, could lead to basically a series of steps that one can't predict in advance, but that could uh, result in a much higher intensity war um, between the two countries. And today, basically, you know, the three most uh, confident militaries around the world would be the Chinese, Russian, and American uh, armed forces. Uh, but in some ways, China is even starting to pull ahead of Russia in, in certain areas. And so anything that could lead to a clash between the U.S. and China is one we would want to treat with great concern. Uh, some of these could also have political triggers. So, for example, in the case of the U.S. and China, uh, many people like myself tend to focus on the prospects for some kind of armed conflict over the status of the island of Taiwan, which China believes uh, is uh, or should be a part of China, to which uh, basically Taiwan believes it should be uh, to maintain its, its sort of de facto independence or even pursue uh, formal independence. And uh, the United States has made certain commitments uh, to uh, come to Taiwan's aid or at least allow Taiwan to resist a sort of having its political future being coerced by another state, especially in this case, of course, China. And, and, and this, of course, is a huge issue for, for uh, the Chinese government because national unification is lies in sort of at the very heart of the legitimacy of the Chinese Communist Party. And it's increasingly being viewed in the United States as a test of a democracy, which Taiwan is uh, facing off against a sort of a much larger uh, autocracy or, 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 you know, or non-democratic state such as China. And so that's an issue which, which would not be uh, started by an accident, uh, such as sort of the maritime scenario I, I discussed a few minutes ago, but would actually result from uh, sort of greater political uh, sort of uh, tensions over the future of the island, which we may not be able to predict entirely in advance, but clearly uh, one can see the broad uh, sort of uh, fault lines given uh, the sort of the, the ways in which uh, uh, Taiwan and uh, China see their futures uh, quite differently, and then the United States getting involved. Um, and, and that is one, you know, Taiwan is one issue that China has not forsworn the use of force. It has made very clear that it will use force under certain conditions. Now, it's made those statements to deter countries from getting involved, but the way in which uh, U.S.-China relations are worsening, it may be the case that there's greater, even greater pressure for the U.S. to be involved in sort of coming to Taiwan's defense uh, than ever before. And then, of course, uh, just to continue the China thread, because it really runs through, through many things, uh, there are other countries in the region who are treaty allies with the United States that the United States has pledged to defend and find themselves in disputes with China. And the most important ones here would be uh, Japan that we've uh, discussed briefly, particularly the dispute over the Senkaku, the Ayu Islands uh, in the East China Sea, but also the Philippines. Uh, and the United States has sort of clarified its language with respect to its treaty with the Philippines to, to sort of suggest that it would be more willing uh, to get involved if the Philippines uh, clashed with China over their uh, disputes over the sovereignty of the Paris, excuse me, the sovereignty of the, uh, the Spratly Islands in the South China Sea. And so here you have a case where you have two treaty allies who have their own disputes with China and the ways in which those disputes could escalate to bring in the United States. And just to round it out, because uh, that's not enough, you have North Korea. And um, you know, the, the Korean situation uh, in some ways is a bit more stable than before, because I think uh, the North has developed nuclear weapons and is not going to give them up. And so you have to sort of deal with that reality. And I think the United States can deal with it through deterrence. Uh, but but if, if, if there is significant regime instability in the North or uncertainty about sort of politics in the North, or if it collapses, you could see a situation which 
all of a sudden you would have U.S. and Chinese troops on the Korean Peninsula once again, as was the case in 1950 uh, with the outbreak or after the outbreak of the Korean War between uh, North and South Korea. Uh, so, so, so many opportunities uh, for conflict in uh, between the U.S. and China. And again, I, I should have mentioned this earlier, but you just had the the, the basic sort of structural dynamic right, of a rising power uh, butting up against sort of a dominant power. And that's the so-called Thucydides trap. Personally, I, I avoid using that term because uh, I, I think it's a little too simplistic, but but clearly we know that rising powers uh, tend to create more, more friction and uncertainty in, in the international system. I don't think they're destined to war, so I, I take some exception to some of the recent ways in which that has been talked about, but yes, that's right. Uh, and then, then you have China and Russia, which is, sorry, excuse me, you have the United States and Russia, which is not necessarily, or doesn't have as many flashpoints as say the United States and China do in, in East Asia, but clearly, right, you have an expanded uh, North Atlantic Treaty Organization that could find itself in a variety of ways, uh, one or more of its members in a real conflict with Russia that would probably, uh, would certainly trigger of the treaty and, and lead to a much greater U.S. involvement. And in some ways, that may be uh, the less appreciated risk, uh, going back to an earlier part of our conversation, because I think if there is a new administration in the United, in the United States uh, next year, I think you'll see a very different approach to Russia. And I think some of the uh, potential uh, challenges with Russia that haven't received as much attention will uh, receive more attention. Um, we'll, we'll Meaning there could be a, an escalation with Russia under a new new administration. I, I, th I think the probability probably goes up, right? Because I think at least now uh, under President Trump, there's been you know basically uh, at the presidential level a, a desire to maintain very good ties with Russia and not really challenge Russia. But I think within certainly Europe and within other parts of kind of, of the U.S. government, Russia is treated with with much more sort of concern. And, and alarm that is probably uh, being reflected in the U.S. policy today. And so you could see, to start, right, just a more um, sort of robust U.S. posture towards Russia, and then that we'd have to see how that would play out. But in some ways, uh, that's been you know the other great power conflict that hasn't necessarily uh, received as much attention today, in part because of the way in which um, there's sort of this peculiar uh, U.S. Russian relationship at the moment. Well, maybe last question, just to and perhaps to end on a little more positive note. Are there any areas where you see actually improvement or where you know your research is sort of seeing a path forward towards uh, the situation uh, getting better? I have a colleague, uh, Barry Posen, uh, who is a, a scholar of, of, of military affairs in particular. And he had a very interesting take on the global pandemic, which is that overall, it has the potential uh, to perhaps create more stability in international relations because you're going to have uh, more countries, much more uh, inwardly focused than before, less willing to spend money on defense, more willing to spend on social welfare, public health, education, all the things that are being sort of uh, identified as priority areas now in societies around the world. And so it, it, it's a bit of a contrarian take, but nevertheless, uh, it is one that if he is correct, and he's often correct, that could, um, that could sort of suggest that we, it would still be very messy kind of international politics, but not necessarily one that would be as prone to escalating, perhaps even in some of the areas that I've discussed. And so I, I may be a bit more of a pessimist here uh, than an optimist, but it does say that, right, nation states have lots of different things they have to worry about. And in a pandemic, right, the most important thing they have to worry about is what happens within their domestic societies and the way in which the pandemic challenges 
uh, in different societies around the world mean that it requires a lot of attention, that's a lot of resources. And to the degree that's true, then uh, states are going to be you know, just more inwardly focused and, and, and less inclined to really uh, get involved in, in situations that could escalate out of control. So I suppose from a scholar of security studies, that's a positive note, but I, I think <laughs> by nature, we tend to, 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 to think about the worst things that could happen uh, and then try to understand why, why they might happen. And, and we, we probably focus less on all the good things that are happening in the world because uh, the, the consequences are, are already quite good for the good things, but the consequences for the bad things are the ones that we really, uh, we, we really tend to worry about. Well, it sounds like you and your program are going to be quite busy. Yes, I think, uh, as I've often remarked to my wife, what's, what's bad for the world is good for business, at least in the business of, of doing this kind of research. And so they're really, I mean, it, in some ways, I'm not even sure we really understand what the future looks like. I mean, it's very easy to speculate, but uh, when you're in the midst of, of a storm, right, you don't really know kind of what storm you're in until, until it's over. So it, it's going to be very interesting to see what happens in the next couple of years. Well, Taylors, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you. Thank you again for listening. For more information about Choate Investment Advisors, you can visit www.choateia.com. That's C-H-O-A-T-E-I-A.com. You can also listen to more of our episodes in the newsroom of our website and subscribe to them wherever you listen to podcasts, including iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. Thanks again. The information provided in this recording is for informational purposes only. While Choate Investment Advisors makes every attempt to present accurate information, the information in this recording may not be appropriate for your specific circumstances, and it may become outdated over time. The views expressed in this podcast are personal opinions only and should not be construed as financial advice for your given situation. Moreover, the views expressed by Taylor Frable are not necessarily endorsed by Choate Investment Advisors, and Choate Investment Advisors may decide to select investments on a different basis at any time without prior notice. Finally, as everyone should know, past performance is not a guarantee of future performance.